Masters Forevermore. Our lesson today is entitled The Road to God. Roads have a purpose. In Oklahoma, sometimes it feels like they're just there as one big pothole to jar you awake as you're driving down the road, but they do serve a purpose. They are to take you from one point to another. If you think about this idea of a, the road to God, the path to God, think about how many times you've been on road trips that required a map to make sure you got to your destination, that you went the right way, that you didn't go off and, and take uh, the wrong path and end up going the wrong direction. How many times have you had to use a map or maybe today GPS to make sure you were going the right way that got, that got you to where you wanted to be? In, in a spiritual sense, it's not even different when we think about coming to God and the road to God. And so this morning, I want to show the road that indeed brings one to God. We think about this idea and this road, this pathway to God. There are several steps and things we must consider. And the first being, when we think about the road to God, it involves learning about Him. In order to go to God, to arrive at the destination of being someone who has a relationship, has fellowship with God, it requires several things. The first being, we must learn about Him. And which begs the question, how? How do we learn about God? This may sound like a very simple question, but there's a lot of different things out there today that people will use to try to learn more about God. But it all boils down to, or it should boil down to, going back to the Bible. We learn about God through the study of His Word. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, He tells us, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. This rightly dividing the Word of Truth is a reference to studying of God's Word so you can know what God desires from us. You can know what is right, what is approved of by God, and what is not. Thus, you will rightly divide the Word of Truth. He also tells us there in verse 15 that such a worker has nothing to be ashamed of. The Bible probably has been and probably always will be the most sold book of all time. As I mentioned before, it's also the most stolen any more now, you can get them almost completely free, thanks to the to technology and things like that. But it is, it's a book that is easily accessible to anyone, basically anyone on the planet, can find the Bible and read it and learn about God. When we think about study through God's Word, we, we find this is how we do it, but also we find well, there are some things we have to avoid. It doesn't matter what you're doing in life. There's always the good things and the bad things. Years ago, I thought I would take up mountain biking. I did for a very short period of time. Chris can attest to that. He saw some good things, some funny things, and some painful things. But I remember once I went to a, to a bike trail there in Collinsville, and there's a map out on the front, and I was looking at it, and I made sure I found the there was a colored path. I made sure I found the right one that would be the easiest so that, in my mind, I don't die. And so I was going to go down that path. Well, as the path went on, and as it often does, you'll have one path that breaks off in different ones, and there are that colored little signs there. Well, I was going down, and like what happens, I don't pay attention, and before I realize it, I'm going down a path that's marked with red. Red was the hardest path they had. 
Well, I was already going down it. I didn't know really for sure how to get back to back in the right one. So I thought, well, how hard can it be? If I come to find out, it's pretty hard. But in the spiritual pathway, we find things that will come in our way that we have to figure out how we're going to handle it. Because we we start talking about the Bible and God and sound teaching. Those are going to come out and say, well, we have some sound teaching here, and you should listen to it. What's interesting is the very next verse warns us about things. Looking at verse 16, he says, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, which means they don't take you closer to God. They actually take you away. It's just like taking the wrong turn. It will take you the wrong way, path that you don't want to go. When we embrace these profane, which are things which are contrary to God, these idle babblings, which do nothing that is good, he says they only increase to more ungodliness, which, again, they're only going to take you away from God. So how do we learn more about God? We stick to the Word. We avoid those things which are derived from man. We learn about God through sound teaching. We think about what we hear, looking at Matthew 7 and verse 24. Here Christ speaking says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, that is those teachings of his, the teachings of Christ, he says, and does them. He says, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And so from that sound teaching, the teachings of Christ, and doing those things, he says, we are like that wise man who built his house on that right foundation, the rock. And then we can endure whatever challenges come our way. We can avoid those wrong paths that present themselves to us. But he also again gives a warning, as we find in verse 26. He says, well, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. See, it's not just hearing them, it's putting them into action. We hear a lot of things. We don't always follow along with a lot of things, do we? We hear a lot of ideas from the world today that we hear them doesn't mean we're going to do them. But we think about Christ as teaching. We hear his teachings, but we also want to do them. But the person who hears these things and does not do them, we would say they, the person who hears it and ignores it. Matthew 13 talks about the parable of the sower. He talks about four different types of soil. And there are those who were rejected, those who fall for a little while, and those who, you know, various types of soils are mentioned there. And there's end up being only one type of soil that was, quote, good ground. And we want to be make sure that we are those who are good ground. We hear and we obey. Not like this foolish man here in verse 26. He built his house on the sand, on the shifting standards of man. Is what I think about here in verse 26. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on, that, beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. It faced the same things that the man who was wise faced in verse 25, but the outcome was different. The reason was one heard and obeyed, one heard and ignored. We want to make sure we hear and we obey. So how do we learn about God? We go to his word. We study it. We become what we call many times students of the Bible. And we are that when we study God's word with the desire to learn and to obey. Which brings us to our next point. What do we learn when we open up God's word? Well, we know there's a whole host of things that we learn. One of the greatest things we can learn is that God cares about you. John 3, verse 16 and 17 tells us, it tells us that God cares about you. 
Bill, many times we open the Bible, they start reading things about saying, well, God tells us I can't do this or can't do this. And they see it as a list of do's and do nots. Without these are a list of ways to get to heaven. And route, there's only one, isn't there? There's the listing of a way to get to heaven. And there's a multiple listings of things you can do to miss heaven. Looking at John 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The world there is not talking about the physical, that God loves his creation, the plants and the trees. He means people, that God loves mankind so much. How much? The Bible says in verse 16, he gave his only begotten son. That is his unique, his one-of-a-kind son. The whoever believes in him should not perish or have everlasting life. We know from Matthew 24, Matthew 7, 24 and 25, it's hearing and doing, right? So it's not just that acknowledging, it's that hearing and doing. And we find in verse 16, the person does those things, he says, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. But notice verse 17, for God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved. He sent Christ to save mankind from their sins when they obey the gospel. You know, all out to the world didn't have to be condemned. It's already condemned. Because when we are outside the body of Christ, when we don't come and obey the gospel, we're already condemned. You don't need to condemn those who are already condemned. You need to reach out to them and save them, don't we? And so we find in verse 17, that's the idea we find here. God did not send him his son to the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He sent Christ to save mankind, not to simply condemn mankind. We know Christ condemned sin throughout his earthly ministry, but he also we find numerous times the point being he wanted man to have heaven as their home. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, not to seek and condemn that which was lost. God wants you to be saved. Look at Ephesians 1 and verse 7. We find that in Him that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood that forgives of sins according to the riches of His grace. What we learn as we study the Bible, that God cares about us. He wants us to have our sins forgiven. He wants us to be saved. He tells us in verse 7 that in Him we have redemption, that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ, that we have the forgiveness of sins According to the riches of His grace. His grace is what? He came to the earth, He died on the cross in order to save mankind. There's no better example of love and mercy and grace that God shows to us than the sacrifice of His Son. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Look at 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. Here He tells us, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but as long suffering toward us, that one that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What do we learn about? That God wants you to be saved. He wants you to have your sins forgiven. He wants you to have a heaven as your home. Doesn't mean that we get a free ride to heaven. Doesn't mean we get the easy path. No, in fact, in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Christ also describes the broad and narrow way. He tells us there in verse 14 that narrows the way to lead to life, and there are few who find it because it's difficult. It's difficult. So just because Christ wants mankind to have heaven as their home, just because he cares about that you want you to be saved and have your sins forgiven, doesn't mean there's nothing you have to do. 
The Bible does not teach that anywhere from Genesis to Revelation. So we learn about him. And then what do we find? Based on what we hit, when we learn about God, learn about what he requires of us, we begin to truly know him. But we don't truly know him until we have obeyed the gospel. Through obedience of the gospel, we find the how. Through obedience of the gospel in Acts 2, verse 37 and 38, when they heard the words of Peter there in the day of Pentecost, and he told them they had just condemned on the cross, killed the Son of God on the cross, and they were to be what? They were now in sin, they were before, but they were guilty of his blood. And they asked in verse 37, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? And what does Peter say? Listen very carefully what Peter says and what he does not say. Because if mankind's idea concerning salvation and the traditions of men were something we could uphold, Peter or Christ or someone would have mentioned it and done so in a positive light. But look what he says in verse 38. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your of, the, of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The first thing he says is repent, which means you have to change. You have to change. Repentance is turning from things that are wrong and turning to God and following that path of faithfulness and obedience to Him. And so change is the first step. Repentance means to change and means you bring those sins to God. And then he says, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. He says they should repent. And then he tells them at what point those remission of sins are given at baptism. You know, those are still two of the most controversial points for people today. Not controversial because the Bible is unclear, but controversial because mankind is hard-headed. We don't want to do what the Bible says sometimes because change is not easy. But friends, we have to ask ourselves just how badly do we want to go to heaven? Look at Acts chapter 9 and verses 1 through 9 here. We're here on the occasion where Saul meets Christ. We know here on the road to Damascus. The Bible says here, beginning in verse 1, And Saul, so bringing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, that he may, that if he found any who were of the way, which is reference to Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's asking for permission to go find Christians and drag them off into prison. It doesn't matter if they're men or women. He was searching them out and bringing them to jail because of their belief in Christ. Saul was definitely very much intense against the church, wasn't he? He was searching them out. It wasn't just, oh, you believe in some, believe in him? We're going to go to court about this. It was, let's find them all and put them all in prison. Let's find them all and put them in prison. That was Saul's mentality. Look next at verse uh, 3 here. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I'm the one who you're persecuting. Now, he was persecuting Christians, but who was he also persecuting? By his actions, he was persecuting Christ. 
And that's what Christ is saying here. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, which is currently doing, right? You're currently actively doing that. He says it's hard for you to kick against the goals. It's really the idea there being it's hard for you to deny who you're talking to. It's hard for him to also deny that this is what he was doing. Look next at verse 6 and following. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Isn't it interesting that when you find the Bible, so many times people come to the point of realizing what is required of them, Felix meaning an exception, you find them asking the question, what shall we do? Acts 2, verse 37, right? Here, Acts 9, verse 6 and 7, what, what must I do? Felix said, when Felix would hear, interestingly enough, Paul later, who he requested to come to him, what did, he, what did Felix tell Peter, or tell Paul rather, go away for now? The Bible also tells us that he was afraid, right? He understood, but his response to the fear was just go away. That wasn't Saul's response in verse 6. Arise, uh, he tells him what to do in verse 6. Arise, go to the city, you will be told what you must do. Saul was speaking to Christ, and yet he still had things he had to do in order to obtain salvation. He wasn't saved on the road to Damascus. He was talking to the Lord. But there's no, you're now saved, is there? There's no, oh Lord, I put my hope and faith and trust in you, and all those terms and phrases that some of our friends like to use sometimes. There's none of that. You know, so there's a complete absence of that. Go into the city and you will be told what you must do. He asked, verse 6, what must I do? Or what do you want me to do? And he said, go to the city and what? And wait and you will be told, verse 7. You jump ahead here. Uh, excuse me, not jump ahead yet. Verse 8 and 9, and Saul rose from the ground. When his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. He basically fasted, Right? And why not? I'm thinking all reality, Saul was probably scared for his life at that point. Now you jump ahead to verse 17. We know, we know the Lord speaks to Ananias, sent him to Saul, and Ananias is afraid to do so. That's what we find in verse 11, uh, verse 10, rather, through verse 16. Ananias finally arrives in verse 17. He's speaking to Saul. The Bible says, Ananias went his way, entered the house, laying his hands on him, and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight at once. He arose and was baptized. After what? He was told this is what you have to do. So when he had received food and he was strengthened, then he saw spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Oh, how things change quickly, right? He spent time with the people who actually came to put in prison there in verse 19, right? He heard, he meets Christ in the road, he realizes who he is, he is told what he must do, which first is wait, right? Isn't it interesting he's first told to wait because some who do not like the church of Christ say we better keep the water warm? That's one of the little comments. <clears throat> But what is Paul, what is Saul told to do first? Wait. Wait till you're told what you must do. He was still baptized, wasn't he? See, that's one of the things people today want to throw in the face of the church, saying, well, you better make sure you're ready, because you know, what happens to the die on the way to, to being baptized? 
My question is, what happens if you die today and you're not baptized? I mean, I've never known anyone die on the way to baptism. We hear that, hear that illustration all the time. What is it? It's just an excuse for going against the truth. Then they die on the way to baptism. Let God sort it out. But get them to be baptized, Acts 2, 38, right? Get them to obey the gospel, Acts chapter 9. That's what Saul was told to do. Wait, and then you'll be told. And that's what happened. Through obedience to the gospel, we come to know God. When did Christ come to know, or when did Saul come to know Christ, rather? When he obeyed. He met him on the road, but it wasn't until after he really began to know who Christ was. And we know that because he began to preach him fervently and without apology. Look next, if you will, with me. As you think about how we know him, we know him not just through obedience to the gospel, we know him through loyalty and faithfulness to him. Revelation 2 and verse 10. We know here in context, he's talking to those who are there in Jerusalem, how they're going to suffer. They're going to suffer persecution and hardship. He references here in verse 10 how the devil is about to throw some of them into prison. That's just their enemy. That you may be tested, you have a tribulation 10 days, not to be taken literal. You're going to be suffering for a period of time that's going to end. 10 days is not to be literal, it's figurative. It's not going to last forever. Notice this last phrase. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Is that any different for us today? No. Be faithful. Look at John 14, 15. It's not on the screen. John 14, 15. Christ says the same thing. If you love me, keep, which is you keep on keeping those things. Keep my commandments. You don't love him once, keep them for a while, and then just move on. That's why Israel had such a hard time in the Old Testament, right? Because they loved him for a while, kept him for a while, and then they disobeyed. What happened? God came after them, trying to bring them back. If, if it was okay to be unfaithful, Israel would have been the prime example. But they weren't. Instead, they became many times a prime example. Of, this is what you don't do. We don't want to be like them in many ways. So we know him. We see the how. But what does it mean to truly know God? We see how we can come to know him through obedience to the gospel, by being faithful to him. But what does it mean to know him? To know God means you know but what He requires from the faithful, and you do it. Going back to Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, look what He says here in verse 21 in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. How do we know God? We do His will. We obey His commands. He says in verse 21 that not everyone gets to go to heaven, doesn't He? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, that's what that means. Everybody doesn't go to heaven. Who does? But he who does, the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, referencing the, the judgment day, Lord, Lord, have we, done, have we not prophesied your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? They're claiming to have done all these things, which saves people to say, well, we were so benevolent. We welcomed in all those others who were doing things that were wrong. We welcomed them all in. We receive people. Look what he says in verse 23. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Why would he say that? Because in verse 21, they were not doing the will of the Father in heaven. Those are the only ones who get to have heaven as their home. What does it mean to know God? It means obedience out of love, 
not out of necessity. Looking at Psalm 119, beginning in verse 166. Lord, he says here, Lord, I hope for your salvation. I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. That is obedience out of love, not out of necessity, not out of compulsion that is being forced. No one ever in the Bible was ever forced to do anything. Noah didn't have to build the ark. He was smart for doing so, but he didn't have to do it. Moses was chosen by God, but did he have to obey? No, he could rebel and God would most likely have chosen someone else. No one is forced into doing anything. But God reveals to them very clearly, this is what needs to be done, and this is why. That's why men and women choose to obey God, not out of necessity, but out of love. Look at verse 166. I hope, he says, Lord, I hope for your salvation. I do your commandments. Verse 167, rather. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. You read nothing here in this text about it being burdensome, about being grueling and difficult. You don't find that. What you find is obedience out of love, and we need that same attitude still today. Some lessons for us today. Knowing Him, that is knowing God, creates a fellowship and a relationship with Him. It creates fellowship and relationship with Him. Look at 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3. We find that knowing Him implies fellowship with Him. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3. It says, Now about this, we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. And he says, we know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his commandments, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. How? By keeping his commandments. When someone asks, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, you obey the gospel, and you continue to follow God's word. That's how we know that we are saved. Sometimes people can have a bad day. They feel like, well, I don't feel like I'm saved. Why? Because you're having a bad day? Disciples had a bad day all the time. The Apostle Paul spent most of his life in prison after he became a Christian. You think he had bad days? But he never once said, I don't feel like I'm saved. He said he knew what he needed to do to be saved, and he continued to do that, remain faithful to God. We find the same idea here in 1 John 2, 3 and following. Looking at verse 6, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked, which means if you say you are a Christian, we have to live it. And that's what he's talking about there in verse 6. If we, how do we know we, we, we know God? How do we know we have fellowship with Him? We follow His Word. We live the life of a Christian. One cannot have a relationship with, with someone they do not know. We cannot say we are a Christian when we don't even know God. And secondly, knowing, knowing Him, knowing God brings blessings. Ephesians chapter 1, looking at verse 3, he tells us there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That was the Apostle Paul speaking. Remember that? The one who was, would talk about how he was beaten, how he was put in chains, how he was stoned, how he was left for dead, how he was shipwrecked so many times, how he was whipped with cords numerous times. Now, we know he would ultimately spend most of his life in prison. And he says, spiritual blessings are in Christ. The man who was beaten so many times is talking about being blessed by God. 
And he says they're only in Christ, which tells us if you want to have those blessings from God, you have to be in Christ, which is the body of Christ. Galatians 3, verse 26 and 27 tells, tells us we are baptized. We are baptized into the body of Christ. We are baptized into its death, right to the body of Christ here in Galatians 3, verse 27. We find here in verse, Ephesians 1, verse 3, what do we receive as a part of our being in the body of Christ? Spiritual blessings. They're only in Christ. God blesses those who obey Him and love Him with tremendous blessings. He gives us what we need in this life, as we find in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33. He gives us what we need in this life. You notice He tells us not to worry about those types of things, doesn't He? Worry about food and clothing, which is sometimes easier said than done. But God reminds us He will provide for us. Also notice here Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, where he says here, But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath, and revelation of the, of the righteous judgment of God, who will render each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. He talks about first those who are treasuring up wrath for themselves because they're disobeying God. What does verse 7 talk about? Eternal life to those who by patient continuance means you're patiently, continually following God and doing good, which is reference to following God here. Seek for glory, honor, and immortality, which means you get to have heaven as your home so long as you're continually following after God. Does that mean we're going to be sinlessly perfect? No. That's why in First John we read about confessing our sins to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us of those things, right? But we want to have heaven as our home. We want to truly know God. We have to begin that right and honest process. The road to God involves wanting to know Him. If you don't want to know God, don't worry. You won't wake up tomorrow knowing Him. You have to decide if you want to do that or not. Those who do not want to obey God are not forced to do so, but they, but they forfeit the blessings of God. If you want to follow God, it requires more than desire and acknowledgement of Him. It takes a determined effort to learn, obey, and continually and a continual obedience to Him. Continual obedience to Him. Which brings us to our final question, which is, do you want to know God? We begin that process when we open our Bible and say, I want to know God, I want to follow Him. And we actually mean it. Because, friends, when we say we don't want to know God, you know, we don't have to say that with our words. Actions so many times and inaction so many times speak clearly enough. We say we don't want to know God when we don't open up our Bibles like we should. We say we don't want to know God when we don't pray like we should. We say we don't know God, we don't want to know God when we don't attend like we should. And the list goes on and on and on. And... We think about that. Think about that very question and that attitude of wanting to know God or not. It has an eternal consequence, doesn't it? If we want to know God, we can, and we can have heaven as our home. But if we don't, we will absolutely lose everything and have any any hope of any chance of hope, any chance of true and lasting happiness goes out the window when we say, "I do not want to know God." Let's be those who never say such things. This morning, as you think about these things, we can help you or assist you. Be glad to do so. That's going to be said and sing the.